Hello, and welcome to the Hebridean Dark Skies Festival podcast with me, Andrew Eaton-Lewis. In this series, I talk to astronomers, artists, and other fascinating people about our festival themes, winter, darkness, and the night sky. The Hebridean Dark Skies Festival podcast is created by Onlanta in association with the Scotsman. Our 2022 festival is supported by Caledonian McBrain, Highlands and Islands Enterprise, and Culture and Business Fund Scotland. The Edge of the Sky is a new theatre show which has its first ever public performance at the 2022 Dark Skies Festival. It's adapted from a book by Roberto Trotter, an astrophysicist and award-winning science communicator. In his book, Roberto tries to explain some of the most complex ideas in astronomy using only the 1,000 most commonly used words in the English language. For the stage version, theatre director Laura Cameron Lewis has added another challenge. Can you tell the same story about the universe with only the 1,000 most commonly used words in Gaelic? I brought Roberto and Laura together to discuss the project, but they ended up discussing much more ancient storytelling traditions, climate change, dark matter, even the end of the universe. I began by asking Roberto how the book came about. My name is Roberto Trotta. I'm a theoretical cosmologist at uh, Imperial College London. Currently, however, I'm on on leave of absence at the International School for Advanced Study in beautiful Italy, uh, in Trieste. And uh, my job is to analyze, understand uh, big data from cosmology, from the universe, to understand where the universe came from, uh, what it's made of, and where it's going in the future. But also, I'm very, very interested in science communication. I've been doing uh, quite a lot of public engagement for for 20 years now. And uh, because I think that those big questions that we ask in cosmology are too important for them to be confined to universities and researchers and scientists. Those are questions about the fundamental nature of the universe, where it all comes from and what will happen to it all. And those are big questions. And every one of us looking up at the stars has wondered about all of this. And we're beginning to give some answers to these very big fundamental questions about the reality of the universe we live in. And I always wanted to share all of this with, with the public at large and always found people fascinated by those questions and by the answers that science is beginning to provide. And so over the years, I've given hundreds of public lectures and talks, but equally I've been exploring ideas and methods to reach out to a diverse different audience, a public uh, that perhaps uh, goes beyond the aficionados, the amateur astronomers, or people who are otherwise interested in science who would normally come to uh, a lecture on, on the subject. And there are lots of people who are interested, but perhaps feel that the subject is not for them, or they are intimidated by a scientific-themed lecture, or for any other reason, really. So I've been experimenting with a number of ideas, especially in the context of a a fellowship that I I held for four years uh, by the Science and Technology Facilities Council, uh, a public engagement fellowship that uh, gave me the time and the freedom to explore some of these more uh, hands-on ways of communicating cosmology. And so I developed a program called the Hands-On Universe. And one of the components of that program was to use food as a metaphor for big, faraway things like black holes, the Big Bang, the expansion of the universe. So, for example, creating the expansion of the universe in the kitchen with pizza dough was a favorite of mine. And, and, and you know, people loved it. Children loved it. And it, it's really a very practical and simple way of bringing very complex concepts, hopefully, to life in a, in a more uh, understandable and relatable fashion. And this was a project that you brought to the Hebridean Dark Skies Festival um, a couple of years ago, which is um, when we first met. Indeed. And that was a wonderful, a wonderful uh, series of events because we were able to uh, do all sorts of things with this basic concept. So we went from doing cocktail, a cocktails-themed evening, which was really uh, fun and, 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 and engaging, I think, uh, with, with a fantastic team at Anlanter who prepared those cocktails in a very creative and very also fancy way. And those cocktails that were designed to represent metaphorically some cosmological or astronomical ideas. We, we, we even did this, this wonderful uh, three-course dinner, again, inspired by cosmology. And each, each 
each course had a, a story to it and it helped to bring in some astronomical notion in a way that was relatable and also delicious, I must say. <laughs> so it was a really, really fun, fun event. So two years on, um, we're really delighted to be bringing another project of yours um, to the Hebridean Dark Skies Festival um, at the Edge of the Sky, which is a new theatre adaptation uh, directed by uh, Laura Cameron Lewis, who we'll uh, talk to in a moment, um, uh, of your uh, book, which kind of came out of this hands-on universe um, project. Tell us about why you wanted to write this book and, uh, and a bit about the concept behind it. Yes, the, the book is called The Edge of the Sky, all you need to know about the all there is. And uh, you can gather from the title that it's not your usual uh, popular science book because the fundamental idea is that I wanted to uh, explain or at least try to um, present the, you know, all we know about the universe and all we don't know about the universe uh, using only the most common thousand words in the English language. And that's why the subtitle of the book is uh, All You Need to Know About the All There Is because this is a book about the universe that does not contain the word universe because it's not in the thousand words words list and so you know this this is a kind of a strange format admittedly uh, i was a bit of an experimental sort of creative writing experiment that i that i did and i can tell you later if you like how i came up, i came to 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 be interested by this format but the, really the, the point of this book was to try and take complex ideas like the big bang dark matter dark energy the expansion of the universe and so on and recast them in a way that would be accessible hopefully to everybody by being forced to strip out all the jargon using only the most common thousand words those are all simple words so the language is simple although the metaphors are not necessarily so simple so people mistake this for for a children's book it's it's not really although it has been read to children as as, as young as five-year-old apparently with enjoyment but actually it's it's an adult book because the metaphors become quite complicated for example you know i don't have i don't have the word coin either in the thousand words list and so i have to make do with describing a coin as a gray flat disc uh, with an he- with a head on one side or something else on the other side which might strike you as unnecessarily complicated but um the idea of of taking away all of the jargon taking away words as universe galaxy electrons scientists earth and replacing them by words like the olderies the uh homeward uh student person for scientists and so on was that you know, this, this new language would create a, a more imaginific, hopefully, experience and a place where readers of all sorts of backgrounds and interests could create with their imagination their own picture of the universe, hopefully guided by the science. So there is, I was very, very clear with myself. I wanted to have a, a very strong red line in the book. Everything that's in the book is as accurate as it can be mm. from a scientific point of view, but it's as simple as it can be. And it leaves space for the imagination because the fact is that when I say galaxy, or electron, or dark matter, all of these words kind of conjure up a certain idea for me as a scientist, as a sort of professional in the field. But of course, for others, you know, an electron might be something completely different. So just by using the word, I'm I'm sort of assuming that my readers will know and understand the word in the same way. And so by taking it away, I'm forced instead to rethink what I really mean by that word and what is the essence of the, the, the you know, the, the, the object or whatever it is that we're discussing, that's important. And recasting that in a thousand words has been, well, really interesting for me, really fun, and hopefully has created a, a new way of looking at the old is for, for people who read the book. Um, so I want, I want to bring in Laura, who's a, um, a theatre director and filmmaker who lives on the Isle of Lewis. And it was Laura's idea to, um, to do a, a theatre adaptation of this book. Uh, Laura, what, what drew you to, to the book? So although my background is as a theatre maker and a filmmaker, I've always had a really strong interest in science. And like a lot of young people, I really struggled choosing what I was going to do with my life, whether I was going to go down a science route or whether whether I was going to do something more creative. Um, and in the end, the creativity won out at that age, partly because I think maybe a lot of that curiosity um, and being a student person, someone who likes to experiment th- with things and discover things and try things out. Um, it's, yeah, in that mode of storytelling and metaphor and, you know, philosophy and psychology and all of those things um, were really where I started out as a, as a theatre maker. So I, I started out not 
making narrative theatre, actually, but um, quite abstract theatre. So rather than starting with story, um, working with things like rhythm and space and time and bodies in space. And so a lot of those aspects of being um, and you know, what happens when two bodies engage with each other in a space and you juxtapose that with something else. It's kind of scientific in a way, you know, very, it's very emotive kind of musical type of language and way of of expressing things. Um, But for me, there was always a connection in my head between those things. So I I was always quite obsessed with um, popular science books about the universe. And when Roberto and I first met, I was asking Roberto, I said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my favourites was Michio Kaku's Elegant Universe. Um, uh, how, how is the science now? Is, is, are, we, are we still there? And uh, um, we'll talk later about how it's changed since that time. But I was, you know, as poetically really, always really taken with and excited and obsessed with the idea of, eternal return and at, at you know in the late 90s the popular science world would have you believe that um perhaps the universe was expanding to a point where it would maybe contract again and there would be another big bang and you know like all young people do you kind of have that what's it's all about um and um you know thinking about parallel universes and how different things might have been and there was something really comforting to me in this idea that even though it's very difficult to grasp and understand what that very, very, very long view of time and space is that maybe somehow we'd be here again and that might explain deja vu or, you know, how resonances work, how intuition works, all of those things that as a a theatre maker, physical artist, you're engaging with on a day-to-day basis in your practice. So, so yeah, that's that's the formal background and the poetic thing. And I just I loved I loved meeting with Roberto and speaking to him. And then when I read this book, um, so lately my practice has been going more into storytelling and looking at um really old and indigenous types and practices of storytelling and how how those are engaging with the contemporary world. And this just seemed to me, you know, someone who's interested in form as well as the uh, metaphor and expression of ideas and engagement between between human beings as a formal experiment it as a book it did a lot of what I'm interested in as the theatre maker so reducing the palette of words down to the small 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 number of words um, and through that act of imagination so in in the theatre space obviously everybody's engaged in an act of imagination. You come into the space and whether it's quite an abstract piece or whether it is a piece with a narrative, you, the piece isn't complete until the person with the, the with their imagination engages with what they're seeing and what they're sensing in front of them. Um, and and that, that sort of moment of frisson between these things is where the work is. And so I got a really deep sense from Roberto's book. That was what it was doing. And... Um, working with those concepts at such a huge unimaginable scale but putting them on a human scale as he does in that book for me creates a moment of the sublime so that's where you're kind of I get very excited by those moments where you're untethered from every day and you open yourself into a space that sort of I I used to call it outside of the frame so you know you'd set up a frame whether it was musical and then the way jazz works, you have beats that fall out of the frame and it's surprising and exciting. And when ideas do that, when emotions do that, when music does that, it allows everyone to enter into a space of becoming and learning and everything becomes new and exciting. So I was just really interested to see how that might work in a four-dimensional space being told by a group of storytellers and also in terms of the language, that formal, um, very poetic use of 1,000 words only to tell something very complex. I started with the question, what would happen if you did that in Gaelic as well as English? Um, So I'm a Gaelic learner. I'm not uh, a native speaker, but um, I've been learning Gaelic now for about six, seven years um, and 
the way that different languages change your personality sometimes they change your the kinds of metaphors that you're working with um the poetics of a language as well as the grammar of a language um they they are different they're different and they give you something different obviously the history of the culture and and those things in it but um yeah so for me it was an experimental question what would happen if if we did this as a storytelling contemporary piece of theatre performance across two languages with this 1,000 words form. I, I think the way that this project, this whole project uses language is, is really interesting, particularly with this new element of this new adaptation, because here we have um, a, a book in English uh, written by a native Italian speaker being adapted <laughs> into a piece of theatre that's partly in Gallic, but by someone who's mm. not a, a native Gaelic speaker. So there's all kinds of interesting things with, with, with language going on here, I think. Roberto, this is not the first time that uh, this book has been adapted in different languages, though, isn't it? I mean, uh, tell me about the experience of, um, uh, of that. The book has already been uh, adapted into, I think, German and Catalan and Korean. That's right. And it's, uh, I think it's, it's a challenge every time you do it, obviously, because the format is so intimate tied with that, the language in which it was written, you know, the thousand words list is a thousand words list in English, but also English because of the structure of the language allows, you know, to use these words in, in, in many different ways uh, that do not necessarily translate in different languages. So I'm, I'm hugely excited by, you know, by this project with, with Laura. Of course, I don't speak Gaelic, so I am, you know, but, uh, but, but I, I'm really hugely excited by all, by all the things that, that she's uh, uh, she, she's teased out of the book, the storytelling aspect, the mixing of the languages, the different expression, the poetic aspects. It's super exciting, and uh, and so far as the other languages go, I, I must say I have no idea about what happened in Korean. It's a beautiful script. It's a beautiful book. It's really a beautiful object to behold. But I have no idea how they did it and and how it works. Now it sounds even. Uh, I've, uh, so I'm afraid I, I I just use it as a really nice piece of. It's a piece of art, almost not not the contents, but the object itself. Um, and it's really interesting the different paths and different routes that have been taken in in German and in Catalan. Instead, uh, I speak German from my university days, um, and uh, so I could read it in German. Catalan, I don't speak it, but it's very very similar to versions of Italian dialect. So reading it is fine. I can I, I can really I can follow it easily. Uh, and so the, the Germans they decided to translate it just like any any book. They just translated it in German. And then they make it they made a crucial mistake. Uh, they they didn't explore they, they sort of put on the cover you know the translation of the title and then the undertitle something like the subtitle something like uh, the universe explained in simple words, but nowhere in the book does it explain why those words mm. and the concepts behind the thousand words and that in English, those were specific words. It wasn't just an arbitrary, simple word choice. It was a constrained choice, a creative choice. So this is not explained in the book. And obviously it doesn't make sense because now you pick it up and you read it and it's very, it's strange. The language is strange. And even in German, you know, and, and also, as you know, in German, they have all these uh, chain words they, they, they attach to each other. And some of the words are like 21 letters long and they're not simple at all in German, but they're strange. Mm. And so the book re- reads, reads in a strange, interesting way, but it doesn't make sense because people will ask rightly, you know, why doesn't he use coin? Why does he use all these metaphors? Or, you know, why doesn't he say universe and I don't and so that seems really contrived unless you know where it comes from so it wasn't a good choice I don't think in the Catalan edition instead they, they've been really smart they they uh, they translated it a, a, a very um, a gifted and appropriate translator translated it um, translating the concept as well and the translator is also an astronomer so he understood the concepts and compiled a list of words and it translated in that list of words, maybe not the thousand words, maybe the fifteen hundred words or whatever. But it's it's translated, not word for word, but conceptually translated as well. And it works, so far as I can tell, just as well as in English. So and and there was a much better way of dealing with this this problem. And so and then and then of course there's Laura's version of it, which is uh, not not a word for word version, but it's a way of mixing it in with Gaelic and and and, and the play between words and words and uh, and languages. 
and that's a yet another interpretation. So I'm really, yeah, I'm really excited to see how this, uh, how this works. I should say at this point that the, the stage version isn't going to be entirely in Gaelic. It's, 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 a lot of it is based on the, um, the English used in the, uh, the book, but with some Gaelic elements. And uh, Laura, can you talk about a bit about how the Gaelic fits into it and, and this challenge of, you know, the, 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 an obvious challenge here is, is that the most commonly used words in Gaelic are clearly not the same as the most commonly used words in English, very different languages. I think, obviously, um, it's quite a complex task to do with two languages. So we, I started with the idea of using a thousand words in Gaelic. Um, and because largely we'll be presenting to a bilingual audience um, and although uh, although the Isle of Lewis is a vernacular Gaelic-speaking community, there are a lot of people that live in Isle of Lewis that don't have any Gaelic whatsoever. Um, so rather than see it as a point of translation between Gaelic and English, I'm interested in what the act of translation is. What's the space between these two languages, as well as each language having its own poetic form, having its own grammatical form, having its own history um, that is inferred by the speakers of those languages. They're different, they're two different fields of meaning, you know, sort of a Venn diagram for people who are bilingual, both Gaelic and English will get, I think, a whole extra layer out of the performance. Um, But that's kind of like Easter egg layer, it's a bonus layer, and it should it should work for other people. I guess like like you were saying, Roberto, about um, how German functions, I don't, I'm not a German speaker at all. I started learning on Duolingo. It was recommended to by um, one of my professors, um, Don William Stewart. He was saying, if you're doing folklore, you really need to learn German. It's a superpower. And so like, oh, I should learn German. I have so many things to do. I, I started learning, but I haven't done very well. Um, but German is... And as as I understand it, is an interesting language compared to a lot of other European languages. Certainly English has simplified hugely over the past um, hundreds and thousands of years from a shared Indo-European base language. Um, and comparatively, German hasn't simplified to the same extent. It still has um, declensions and there are all sorts of grammatical forms that don't exist in English anymore, um, but would have been there. Um, and Gaelic, uh, you know, if you were to compare the grammatical changes and the, the vocabulary changes in the language, Gaelic is um, even more insular. So it hasn't, it hasn't simplified to anything like the same extent as the English has. So historically, there's something really and, and culturally, really interesting there that there's a clearer connection to older texts and older culture and older civilization. And that is not on any level to suggest that Gaelic is a language of the past, not for a moment. It is very much alive and kicking and contemporary, and people are using it and, uh, and speaking it in really exciting ways and in all contexts um so it's it's not it's not hobby language at all um it's a working language and living language for for everyone who uses it but when i was thinking about the the central mechanism of the of the book um of this metaphor of learning and trying to understand what is you know to an extent incomprehensible in its totality um, at a scale that goes beyond civilization, backwards and forwards, beyond human, beyond any idea of a human scale. Um, and there's something really um, particular to, to the Ga- Gaelic linguistic culture um, that, that has, to an extent, um, fallen away, but was, until only a few hundred years ago, very much still in the role um uh of the the bard the feely so in the the gallic um tradition the the feely is the student person of the culture so they are responsible not just for 
knowing um, the oral history of the of the clan of of the culture, they're responsible for uh, being able to place all of the genealogy, being uh, cognizant of and passing on information about place, place names, all through all the songs, all of the oral literature. They knew about stars. They knew about. Um, they knew a huge amount of philosophy, um, and the, all of all of these were are are still very deeply part of the Gaelic Cayley culture, passing on of information, of storytelling, of you know going over versions of stories, going over versions of place. Um, discussing, uh, you know, it's a deeply, deeply intellectual oral culture. Um, and it, it's not a role that was, that was, that anyone could just assume in the way that, you know, perhaps with a, a younger poetry in the English speaking world, let's say, uh, slam poetry, you know, someone who's done a year's worth of work in that would perhaps get a performing gig in uh, a slam. Um, a slam session in Edinburgh, for example, but you would have to study for at least seven years in order to be a feely. You would have to um, apprentice yourself out to other bards and feelies. And they also had druidic knowledge. So they had knowledge of the planets, of the stars, of all of the histories of the culture. And they were they were like the central repository, the word storus in Gaelic, um, Stora, so they were the treasure trove of of the knowledge of the clan, and the and as Roberto and I have been discussing about his book, you know, what if? And this is the central premise of the theatre version of it. What if this knowledge? Um, how do we keep knowledge over a long period of time? And what if someone were to discover this hundreds and thousands of years in the future? Um, maybe not having a connection, you know, perhaps there's a big disruption, a technological disruption. Um, it's the way that we keep knowledge just now, data on computers and so on. If there is a technological blackout, as a culture, you know, looking back, the the times we're living in now might well be a dark, considered a dark ages. So a lot of the information that we have, it's not in the, in the format of uh, of material culture. You know, it's 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 abstracted into the world of data, and across different cultures, how we create repositories of knowledge, how we pass them on, how we pass them on beyond the linguistic barrier is endlessly fascinating. I don't know if either of you guys have, um, are aware of uh, this, like being a group of uh, a kind of crack team of people working on um, how to, the problem of how to mark sites with nuclear dumps. Um, so how, how can you leave some sort of indication, what kind of symbology beyond language could you put on the ground, on top of these big concrete pads in um, you know, places where very, very high-level nuclear waste is buried to tell human beings, never, 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 Never touch this stuff. Do not go here. Don't dig here. Don't live here. This is a very dangerous place. Is this in um, Robert McFarlane's book, I wonder, isn't it? Yes. Is it? Yes, yeah. wonderful. Yes, wonderful. Yeah, he talks yes. about that. Yes, yes. Indeed, yeah. How do you how do you communicate across eons? And uh, of course, you wonder that you will be misunderstood, right? What if mm. you put all sorts of precautions around it and future humans or whatever descendants, they actually think something really interesting, really precious is buried here. Let's go and dig because <laughs> yeah. it's so protected, right? <laughs> Indeed, yes, yes. And the same problem actually arises thinking about communicating in the future with alien civilizations, right? How do you make sure you, you know, if we ever have this opportunity, which of course would be delayed by the time delay it takes for the signal to travel across vast mm -hmm. distances in space. So it's not very much a conversation, it's more like a one-way, you know, hello, and then 120 years later, hi. Uh, it's a little <laughs> bit, <laughs> it's a bit <laughs> like that. So how do you make sure, you know, since you have to wait 120 years or whatever for a round trip of the message, how you make sure that what you say is understood? Because yeah. you know, if you say something and then you, you wait a few centuries and the message comes comes back like, what was that? 
Um, <laughs> it's not entirely clear that it works. Yeah, signal's dropped out. Signal's gone. Oh. <laughs> You're breaking that is up. Fascinating. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. This idea of how, how to communicate across divides of culture, time, words, mm. barriers, and of course, we become more we become more globalized in, in, in the present world than we ever were before. Uh, but nevertheless, different, these, these big differences in, uh, in culture remain and, uh, and are reflected, like you were saying, Laura, in, in the way we, the, the words we use, metaphors we use, the, the culture of the language. So it's usually fascinating to see this mm. translated across this divide. And imaginative, the way you imagine it in the future, mm. for example, really, really interesting. Yeah, I, I was, I was, Thinking about um, that, communicating, you know, the the deep space probe with uh, with the the message message to the aliens, and how I just I just love I love that we've actually had to go backwards to a more analog form of communication. So there's it's is it gold? I can't remember the color of the disc, but there's some sort of record that's actually um, got the Beatles on it and and the message, um, some different languages. Things like this, so you know, you can't rely on the fact that people are going to have the same technology in the future. You have to, you have to make some sort of mechanical device and provide the way of doing that. You know, like wax cylinders or, or um, pressing, uh, pr- inscribing into tablets. These sorts of things that won't decay over a long period of time. And then I was, I was telling Roberto the other day about. Uh, I, I got the idea of using a reel-to-reel tape in the show. So the, the kind of central premise is there's a, a woman from the past who is a astrophysicist and she's created this kind of storus, a sort of time capsule. And, um, you know, reel-to-reel tapes, they're just they're fantastic things, aren't they? And you would hope that anyone of any level of technology in the future, even if you hadn't read a recorder, they would understand magnetic tape. You know, there's it's it's on, it's off. There's it's like fundamentals of of um, digital communication, um, and it just reminded me of when I was wee. I had this broken record player that my granddad had left me. I can't remember why it was working, not working. Um, but I, I used to love taking things apart and do. So I'd figured out that I could <laughs> could make a um, a cone out of paper, and I, I got a sewing needle, and I used to sit and like DJ you know, spin the record around in my hands and completely ruin these records, of course, with a sewing needle, but get the tune out that I wanted to have. And um, yeah, so I was like looking for something, something of that, you know, what, not necessarily a child, but how, <laughs> how fun it would be to find this store, store us, the store of stuff and, and what you would make of it and how you would teach yourself language if you didn't have it. And, uh yeah and and you know musically the physicality of sound and being able to see the sound on the wheels as well and, and all sorts of things you can do with tape yeah i hope that the aliens that if if, if aliens ever find the voyager probe uh, disc the golden disc we're talking about laura i hope they will be more considerate with the disc than you have been in your childhood <laughs> The one destroyed <laughs> immediately uh, by experimenting with needles and whatnot. Did <laughs> <sighs> you know and another interesting, fascinating aspect to this is the time dimension as well, right? Because all of this, like you say, this spans the book certainly, and also the the, the the theater piece in a sense spans all of these huge superhuman time spans. And and they on that disc in the one 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 way of visual not visualizing, but one way of bringing this to life is to think about the kind of timescales that we're looking at for, for that disc that's now, you know, that's been sent with the Voyager 1 probe, um, 1977, 1978, and now it's getting lost at the at the edge of interstellar space, uh, so many billions of miles away from the Earth. But o- after all of this voyaging, it's only really still in our cosmic neighborhood. It, it still hasn't quite left the solar system. So at, the, at this speed, it will take 26,000 years to get to the nearest star. So it's not, you know, this is, this is just... 
incredible to to contemplate. And so knowing that this this disc will you know probably never be picked up by anybody, frankly. But um, you know, Carl Sagan, who was uh, was one of the one of the people behind the idea and and, and also put an enormous amount of effort to create this disc in, in a very interesting manner. He put a layer, or he had a, a layer of radioactive um, radioactive substance put on top of the disc and it's a substance that I can't remember which of the radioactive elements they use but it's one that has got a half-life of 4.6 billion years so it's like a clock and so if the aliens ever recover the disc by judging by how much the radioactivity has decayed they will know when it was sent when it was when, when it left and so oh. it will, it's a clock that will run for billions and billions of years in some sense oh my gosh I love that yeah, that takes carbon dating to a whole new level, doesn't it? <laughs> indeed, indeed. So it's it's fascinating. This other dimension, the time dimension that we're talking about, you know, knowledge surviving for so long, and it could very well be um, that you know, when when we're all gone, not just we as as individuals, but we as a species, we as a planet, we as a solar system, that one disc and that one probe and its twin, the Voyager 2, that will be the only leftover relic that humanity, humankind ever existed in the universe and might well be our last surviving message in the far future. Um, mm. It's kind of sobering to think. <laughs> mm. it, um, <laughs> so I'm going to, on that note, I'm going to come back to when you broke my little poetic heart that night I was like so excited oh Roberto is the it's an eternal return is that what's going to happen the universe is expanding and then it's going to contract again and you said no that's out of the window by now unfortunately no. because, <laughs> but it's not because the popular science books of the 90s got it wrong I mean they at that time, that was the lore when, when you were reading uh, th mm. these books in the, in the early 90s. But by the late 90s, everything had changed, you see, with, with the discovery of dark energy, which in the book is called the dark push, because it's this substance that we don't really know about in terms of its fundamental nature that fills the, the whole of space. 70% uh, of, of, of the energy of the universe is in the form of this dark push, as we call it, or dark energy, as we properly call it, but in the book it's called the dark push. And it's called the dark push because what it does is precisely that. It pushes the universe apart. And so that means that, you know, if the universe had been left to its own devices under the influence of gravity, it was quite possible that it would have expanded up to a certain maximum size and then stopped and contracted back in that oscillatory uh, eternal return pattern that you described. But with dark energy, it's an entirely different picture. Now the universe is not only expanding, it's actually accelerating in its expansion, which means it's going to go faster and faster and faster in the future. And so it will never, we think, collapse back onto itself because dark energy in the long run wins and gravity loses out. So unfortunately, you know, the, the, the long term future of the universe is a bleak one where all the galaxies are expanded away faster and faster. Eventually, we will not be able to see other galaxies in the sky uh, because dark energy will have pushed them too far away for us to ever see. Light will not be able to catch up with us anymore. So that's one of the reasons why I say, I always say, you know, to governments and funding agency, agencies, we need that money for those telescopes now, because if you only wait a few tens of billions of years, we won't see the galaxies anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so give us the money now to do the research that we need to do now. But you would hope that in those millions of years, if humans still exist at all, we'd have developed the ability to go a bit further out into the uh, out into the universe. It looks like well, it looks like this is a real fundamental limit in terms of you know it's really really difficult to uh, capture and explore and understand how vast the universe is, um, partially because we are all sort of used to these wonderful science fiction stories where you just press a button and warp drive kicks in or whatever, a tunnel, a wormhole, whatever, and you're there. But unfortunately, <laughs> this is really heavy on the fiction and, and light on the science, because if the speed of light is the fundamental limit that we think it is, then nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. That is not quite true, actually. Um, there are exceptions. Uh, for example, distant galaxies do move away from us faster than the speed of light, but only because they're not moving in space. They're only being stretched away by space, being expanded by the universe's expansion. So the trope that the speed of light is unbreachable is not quite right. And in fact, it is breached by galaxies routinely, but only because the universe expands. And so if you want to get there, you have actually to, you know, to travel at sublight speed. And that just takes forever. 
And so I, I for one, think that, you know, this idea of human colonization, not just of the stars, but even of Mars, you know, we hear in the news, you know, these billionaires building rockets and taking the humanity to the red planet and so on and so forth. I think this is a huge destruction. I think Earth is the only home we have, is the only home we will ever have. And, uh, and we should take better care of our home, our cosmic home, our blue planet. And, you know, thinking that Mars is going to be our our safety boat and we're going to all be able to live there happily once we have incinerated the earth with climate change that is not that is not a good way of looking at things and uh, it's actually a distraction and it actually makes people think well fine if this planet uh, gets too hot for us we'll go somewhere else and actually mm. no that's not how it works <laughs> no it's it's kind of human nature isn't it to to defer things you know it's partly what makes us what makes us curious and what makes us uh, um, develop is this ability to defer, you know, it's like part of executive function. Oh, if I, if I save this stuff for the winter, then, then we'll have some things next year, you know, and we put everything into our, into the next generation because that's going to continue. And that's the little place we get that solace from when we think the big black thoughts of what happens when it all ends for me. Um, And I think, I think what's really beautiful about the ending of this book and that kind of ultimate heat death, cold, 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 lonely, lonely um, nothingness that that comes at the end of all of that is, hang on, (laughs) we're talking about time, space and time, time, now, now, we're right here now. Why are we not, why are we not taking care now? Why are we not being as present as we could be? And enjoying the beauty of existing like it's so you have like so many great um, metaphors in the book about how utterly improbable it is that we could be here at all 400 coins all happening to land heads up because if you throw enough coins and there are enough rooms where the coins have been thrown literally billions and billions against billions to the power of billions and billions that must have to be i'm not a statistician so it's not my superpower but i'm guessing it would have to be billions and billions to the power of billions and billions and billions um but there we are it's happened this is the universe where we do exist um and we need to be a bit <laughs> happy about that don't we indeed indeed and indeed the book does try to sort of end in, in a positive note with with the, the main character the student woman enjoying that moment that you were talking about laura you know sitting in front of the sun as it rises after she spent a, a night at the telescope and enjoying that moment of bliss maybe one could call it i don't know but certainly being present in this moment on this planet at this time uh, even even as she has spent uh, the night pondering the mysteries of the universe and dark matter and looking at distant galaxies with with this telescope, which is uh, which is not called a telescope, it's a big seer, of course, uh, because <laughs> telescope is not in the list of a thousand words. But yes, indeed. So the, the the trying to understand the big times and the big scales and the big questions of the universe somehow brings us back to ourselves and uh, makes it makes it. Uh, look and feel even more important that we actually treasure what we have here and and and, and now on this small uh, uh, and very fragile blue planet. Absolutely, mm. and I love that word, big seer. <clears throat> you, I'm sure you didn't come down on that description accidentally, because it it uh, it resonates with with the traditional or uh, almost druidical shamanic use of of seer and. Um, people who practice meditation, um, as I do, um, going deep inside and journeying inside and into consciousness and into now and present in this moment here, um, even if you might be thinking about the past or um, making connections between things very far in the future, going into that inner space and going on a journey through into language, into metaphor, into the soul, into, yeah, into consciousness, into now is just as huge a journey, I, I think, as imagining yourself all the way out there. Absolutely. To the inside. 
How many dimensions on the inside, Roberto? What's the well, spin of the consciousness of the human soul? <laughs> yeah, no, th those are questions that, uh, like I say, sometimes, you know, I, th I think looking at the stars and looking at these dark nights, of which, of course, on the island of Lewis, you are blessed of having many. I hear you even saw the uh, aurora recently, which is amazing. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, looking at those dark nights and those beautiful stars, all these questions, they come to the fore, right? Because uh, the, the outer world eventually brings you back in, into this inner world that you're talking about. And uh, um, that, that's why it's important that we don't lose that connection, I think, with the sky, with the stars. I, I don't think you are particularly in danger of, of, of that where you are because you've got the blessing mm -hmm. of dark skies and sort of unpolluted sky still, which, which is wonderful. Uh, but unfortunately, most people don't look up at the stars anymore because they live in cities where you don't see the stars anymore, you don't see the sky. And certainly I saw the difference uh, when I moved from London, where, I, you know, you, you could see a few dozen stars if you were lucky uh, in the in the, in the orangey haze that permanently glows from this big city. Here in the in a more rural location, not as good as, as the Isle of Lewis, but rural, nevertheless, I can, I can see the Milky Way every night. I, I, I know exactly where the planets are. I can, I, I bought a telescope and I'm looking at the moons of Jupiter. Uh, it's, it's, it's a different connection with the sky. And, um, and I find that it's so important to have this direct connection where, you know, unfortunately we're losing some of these connections through, well, through technology, partly because, well, technology is very powerful. It enables us to do this, what we're doing now, which is talking, mm -hmm across distances, which is wonderful, but equally, you know, it, it sort of takes away the magic of looking through a natural telescope. And because yes, you can bring up in a, in a touch or two of, 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 a, of, a, of a touch screen, you can bring up the same, whatever patch of the sky you want as seen by the Hubble Space Telescope. And that is wonderful. And it's amazing. And it's absolutely fantastic that we can do that. But nothing, nothing quite compares to, when the, to, the, to the first time you see the rings of Saturn for yourself through the telescope this is this is unbelievable it's just so emotional and uh, if people don't have that experience anymore either because they are in big cities or because they don't care or because they don't they don't, don't think about it anymore um, i think they're losing something they're missing something of our primordial connection with the sky and our you know how the sky was always so present for our forebears and uh, and uh, it was so important in in the life of uh, of humankind and so we, we're losing that fast. And so I think you're so blessed that you actually have the opportunity to still be connected, to still look up and still see the stars and, and, and recover mm -hmm. that connection that brings you back to not just yourself, but to your ancestors and how they used mm -hmm. the sky, how they oriented themselves with the sky, the, the rights that they uh, had and the, the stories, the myth that they saw written in the sky. All of that is, is I think, as important as... Uh, you know, what we do now with the big telescopes and the Hubble Space Tele Telescope and the James Webb Space Telescope soon, studying all of this from a scientific point of view, it's one side of the story. Then there's the other side of the coin, which is all the meaning that the stars have had and have still for humanity. We shouldn't lose that either. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And there's uh, Gallic culture is so so connected to the seasons and the change of the seasons for the reasons you describe. You know, you have to, that's survival. You need to know when when to plant. You need to know how to get home. You use, you use the stars to steer your boat, to find your way. Um, beautiful, beautiful poetry in the language for that. The um, Northern Lights Aurora Borealis are called Nafirchlish, um, which means the nimble men. And you can just, you know, I, speaking to our, our friend Delina McLennan, she tells me about how it used to be when she was growing up in Marowick. And, uh, you know, in the daytime, she'd be walking out on the moss to get the cows and her bare feet just sounds incredible. And, yeah, she's just like, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the northern lights would be out most nights in the winter. And uh, you read um, Rory McLean, he, he he's got some lovely stories about um in which is the Pleiades and uh and Shelligarmore is the hunter Orion but instead of a instead of a, a bow he's got a plaid so that's the, that's the end of his feely moor billowing out into the universe and I love that I love standing on my front steps and just looking at him oh there he is tonight just imagining him striding out and thinking yeah, how how you would connect to that, and I do. Uh, 
I do think that there's something really fundamental to humans that we need it. I remember the first six months I spent um, living here and was in an off-grid caravan. It's basically a tin black house. Off-grid, no water. Um, and particularly when it became winter, it got dark. You put your tilly lamp on for a bit, maybe read. Um, you look at the stars. You go to sleep earlier. And so, you know, you do... You would go to bed with the with the dark. You would rise with the sun. You could not help but be absolutely keenly aware of every single thing that was happening in the sky and happening in the weather and happening with the tides. And it gives you such a sense of peace and groundedness. And you feel like you're in the right place in the world. And I do think that in terms of that darkness and winter particularly, you need that. Because that stops you getting seasonally affected disorder and feeling stressed and awful. You need to go to sleep. We need to hibernate a little bit to an extent. So there's, I think there are deep biorhythms that uh, that that we need and we we kind of steer ourselves with from the sky, as well as those stories which connect us and those really uh, deeply fundamental ways that we need to be tied to the land and our ancestors and future. Um, we probably have to wrap it up fairly soon, but thank you so much, both of you. Um, I, often with these um, podcasts, I, I jump in with questions quite a lot, but I've been really happy just to let you guys talk because it's, it's been really fascinating. And I think one of the things this conversation has really illustrated is that all these common points between uh, art and astronomy and, and, uh, and artists and, and astronomers, there's still this odd little preconception that scientists and artists think and talk in very different ways and it's it's, it's quite often not the case There's, um and um i mean R- roberto for example um this isn't your first piece of theater i mean you you did a, a theater show just last year in italy um i gather yes that's right i will had this uh, opportunity to to co-write a piece of theater uh called uh, um libra for the for for the constellation of of uh, of the of the um what do you call them? Oh, how do you call it in English? Constellation with the two, with the two, with the weighing plates. Uh, what it's Libra. Libra, you can't say it. Okay, you, don't, you, don't you have a, another word for it? Because in Italian, it's a different word. It's the same word that we use for the instrument, for the measured instrument as well. But anyhow, so the, the, the play was about, that's why I was talking about the, the importance of, of the sky. It was co-written with a, with a, with a theatre director and, and a filmmaker, Gigi Funcis, here in Italy, about uh, the, what would happen in the future if uh, we would lose the sky, if the sky is covered with uh, satellites, of which now there is an incredible exponential increase, and people live in uh, in light-polluted cities, they don't see the stars anymore, and even the, the moon has become a huge billboard with publicity and advertisement going around it all the time. And so we, we, we set this fictional uh, theater piece in the future in 2042 uh, with, with some connections with reality today because of all the satellites that are going up today and that we're exploring what would happen to humanity if we lost that contact with the, with the, with the stars in a, in a very playful and imaginative and, and sort of science fiction-y manner. And we had the opportunity of, of presenting that, that uh, of, of, of uh, putting up this, this uh, piece at uh, uh, Miramare Castle, which is this beautiful 19th century white stone castle perched on a, on a cliff uh, on the Bay of Trieste. And so we transformed the facade of the castle uh, with 3D video mapping, pre- presenting, essentially representing this future dystopic world uh, in, 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 in Transforming the really the experience of being there for the for the viewers into an immersive theater experience with holograms and, and video streams coming in and, and live actors on stage, it was really really fascinating. Very very different from what we're doing with Laura, but fascinating in, in in a different way. And I but again I think apart from all the technology that we used, my focus and 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 the director's focus, Gigi's focus, was about the story. We wanted to tell a story. We wanted to tell a story. Inspired by science with some astronomy content, but most of all, we wanted to do a bit of storytelling. We wanted people to wake up one day in this dystopic future and imagine what would our life be like if we had lost the sky. Um, and hopefully, well, I hope we succeeded, but it was, it was really fun and interesting experience. And this is something that's, that's come up a few times when I've been talking to astronomers in, in podcasts and other kind of dark skies festival events is that astronomers in many ways are 
kind of fundamentally storytellers. I mean, it, it's, it's extraordinary that that in only twelve thousand words um, in this uh, book, you've kind of told the whole history of the universe. I mean, that that's a, 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 an incredible act of storytelling. Well, you know, the, the format does encourage brevity because you can't go on and on and on with only so many words. <laughs> and in fact, of the thousand words available, I ended up only using seven hundred and seven. But but yes, you're right. I think I think the the, um, the storytelling aspect to me certainly is very very important. And uh, the book gave me the opportunity to to try and condense it in, in, on multiple levels: condense the ideas, condense the, the length, also condense the words, uh, the word count. Uh, but in a way that I hope will um, will is such that will speak not just to people's minds but also to people's hearts. So it's it's very it's very important, of course, to, to to inform people to talk about science in an informative, knowledgeable, and 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 precise manner in certain contexts. But equally, I think, especially especially when we talk about big, far away things like in astronomy, to entice people and to make them curious and to fire up their curiosity and their interest for the subject by tying those ideas that can feel a little bit far away. What, you know, what, what's it for me? Why should I be interested in all of this? Well, that's the mo- most important thing that we need to answer. And storytelling is the answer for me. Uh, it's not more facts and more data and more pictures. Yes, all of this is important. But before people are interested in all that, you need to get them to the place where they actually think, well, there's something in it for me. It has to speak to me in some way to and not 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 all the time do you need to go through the intellectual level. I think you, as, as Laura knows very well, as a as a theater maker, you you need to go through to to through the emotions, and that's what that's what I've been I've been trying to do. Mm. And storytelling is, after all, the first virtual reality, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, you don't need to show everything. No, you don't need to see a fully rendered um, Maya three dimensional space that we can walk through. You can just describe it to someone and then <laughs> there you go. It's, in, it's yes. rendered in even more exciting glory because it's through their own interpretation. Exactly, exactly. Um, Laura, just as a final question, what would you like audiences to take from this um, project? I would like them to bring their curiosity and playfulness and uh, I would like them to engage in that process of building their own virtual reality, virtual space of the universe in their imaginations. Um, and I hope that, <laughs> I hope that we leave them with angels in the room at the end. Um, you know, we do, we were talking about the, the bleakness of this uh, ever expanding and um, eventually becoming cold universe. But I think there's a huge amount of beauty there in solace. In the images and in that sense of being present now um, and being with each other. It's a beautiful thing to be with other human beings, isn't it? And so I think we've missed so much these past two years. Oh my gosh, yes. I'd like them to have a great time, have a nice drink, have some food, have a chat, shake hands. No, don't shake hands, wash hands. I mean, yeah. Be with other people. We've forgotten what's that, what that's like, haven't we? So, Andrew, if you, if you like, maybe to close off this and, and on Laura's uh, uh, words as well, maybe I could um, read out the, the last bit of the book, how the book yes, ends. Absolutely. She's hopefully bringing us some that, of that solace that Laura was talking about because it's not all bleakness and it's all not. So this is this is the ending of the book, and I'm not giving away a big finale or anything. I don't think because it's not a thriller, but it's the moment when the the scientist, the she, the, the sorry, the uh, the student woman, as I call her in the book, comes down from the telescope after the night's work, investigating dark matter. She sits down. The big blue body of water in front of her seems to go on without edges and without end. She can feel the warm hand of the sun on her face. She feels happy. The night's work has gone well. Big Seer has done a great job. The best that could be done. She can go home now. But her job has only just begun. There's much more left to do in the coming weeks and months before she can make sense of what Big Seer saw last night. She's looking forward to it. Letters and words and entire books are hidden in what Big Seer has given her, written in the strange tongue of the old is. Little by little, she will understand it better and better. 
all she needs to do is ask the right questions in the right way, and she might learn the truth. She smiles, and the sun smiles back at her. Wonderful. Thank you, Roberto. Thank you, Laura. You've been listening to the Hebridean Dark Skies Festival podcast. The Hebridean Dark Skies Festival takes place each February at Onlanta and across the Isle of Lewis. The festival is supported by Caledonia McBrain, Highlands and Islands Enterprise and Culture and Business Fund Scotland in partnership with Lewes Castle College, UHI, Stornoway Astronomical Society, Callanish Visitor Centre and Gallon Head Community Trust. Our podcast is created by Onlanta in association with the Scotsman and presented by me, Andrew Eaton-Lewis. The sound was mixed by Hamish Brown. If you'd like to find out more about the Hebridean Dark Skies Festival, visit Anlanta's website, www.lanta.com. <laughs>